Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up in this episode. What is the lowest possible risk that can be achieved? I think there's a genuine concern on the part of those running rugby that we want to make the game safer. But the defender is the one who's more at risk than the ball carrier. Are you saying that you're okay with brain injury? I think it's safer given the intensity of the game, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Glad you said that, not me. Welcome to the Science of Sport. My name is Mike Finch, and as usual, I'm here along with uh, Professor Ross Tucker. And today we're talking about the safety of rugby. And uh, anybody that lives in a country where rugby is a theme, of New Zealand, South Africa, um, England, Wales, all those countries, and the, the, the safety aspect of rugby has always been something that a lot of people have talked about. And to give an example, I was having a bit of a chat uh, the other day, Ross, and I'll tell you, tell you the story of a good mate of mine who works in the rugby space, a mad rugby follower, and he actually works with some of the provincial teams here in South Africa across uh, various media um, uh, spaces and, and his son is an under 11 rugby player and I was having coffee with him the other day and saying to him you know your son's doing really well at rugby he's playing like in the B team and uh, very fanatical and he enjoys training at the weekend by himself but um, you know do you want him to be a great rugby player and I expected him to say I would love to him to be playing first team rugby by the time he's in high school and be a better rugby player. But his answer kind of surprised me. He said, because I've seen what it takes to be at the top level of rugby uh, and because it's part of what I watch every single Saturday and also I'm involved with on a day-to-day basis, the last thing I want to see is my son playing first team rugby because I actually think it's a little dangerous. So I suppose the opening question is, is rugby as a sport dangerous? Define dangerous. I mean, it depends where you draw that line. Um, I'm not going to say flippant things like getting out of bed is dangerous because that's stupid. People often do that and I find it um, disingenuous and unhelpful to the discussion because, of course, when you play a collision or contact sport, let's not use collision, NFL is a collision sport, this is a yeah. contact sport, of course there's risk. Um, it's unavoidable when you are trying to tackle someone or being tackled by someone. So, so, so the answer is yes, it is. The question is, is it too dangerous? And that is a philosophical question that every person has to answer. Now, your friend is assessing it from his position. I was watching a school match at the weekend. Two of the big South African schools played in a probably the top school match in the country this yeah. year. And there were thousands of fathers sitting in those stands. Well, not thousands of fathers, but at least at least 30. And there will be thousands of others who are absolutely fanatical about their kids wanting to go on to play rugby. And so are the kids. So I think every single person makes that choice um, based on their assessment of the risk and the reward. And it's not only because of the injury risk that your your mate is concerned. It's also the sacrifice, the time, the commitment and so on. But ultimately, the question around whether rugby is unsafe or too unsafe is a philosophical one. It depends on how you evaluate risk. Now, my job these days is to try and reduce that risk. Yeah. I'm never going to get it to zero. Nobody can. Um, zero risk is a theoretical ideal 
But what we can do is minimize it as far as possible, make it reasonable. In other words, what is the lowest possible risk that can be achieved? And as long as you are doing the things to achieve that and communicating what the risks are to people, then they can make informed choices. Because we could find 100 retired professional players, and I guarantee you 90 of them will say, I've got no regrets. Yeah. They, they got a huge amount out of rugby. Even people who play rugby at the weekend in clubs and, and at the community level will say that we value and love the sport for half a dozen reasons. And we are more willing to take on the positives and accept the fact that there are some risks because we believe that the good outweighs the bad. So that's a personal decision. And I'm never going to sit here and say, you know, you should accept those risks or you shouldn't because every single person must decide that for themselves. I know we're going to talk specifically about the kind of injuries that uh, have been, first of all, addressed by World Rugby and, and through work with your, people like yourself. But just to digress slightly towards the talent identification, we've had a couple of um, pods on the talent identification side of things. When we talk about selection before the age of 16, is that one way to minimize risk in younger rugby players, for instance? Yes, and perhaps even as context to that, risk in young players is actually nowhere near what it is in the professional game. Right. So we see the professional game because it's on television and the, there are a number of studies that document the risks, the numbers of injuries. And we know the professional game is quite high, but it only really starts getting high after adolescence. You know, Prior to that, in children at the age of 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 playing rugby, the risk of playing it is not statistically different to the risk of playing soccer or basketball or ice hockey or whichever other sport. Equestrian has yeah. a high, super high risk in kids. So until adolescence and you get to... Falling off a horse, in other words. Yes. It's more risky. Yeah, yeah and, the, and the injuries that happen from that are much more severe. I mean, they yeah. tend to be very bad injuries. Yeah. So the point is that in children, the risks are not nearly what they are in adults. And in the community game also, the risk is a quarter of what it is in professionals. So it's the size and the speed and the intensity and the just the, yeah, the level of rugby determines that risk. So y your mate's concerns really would become greater and greater the higher up the hierarchy his son went. Yeah. So, the, and I'm not trying to downplay the risk to children. Um, hospital admissions, for instance, in Australia happen because of rugby uh, in, in a good proportion of cases, but no more than playing yeah. basketball or other sports and so forth as well. So there is risk, but that's not sufficient risk to wrap kids up in cotton wool. And, and a friend of mine, a colleague who works out of New Zealand for New Zealand Rugby as a scientist, has written a paper. And if anyone wants to read this, the British Journal of Sports Medicine published this in 2017, and it's called Facts and Values on the acceptability of risks in children's sport using the example of rugby. And he's outlined the concepts so I'm where, where talking. Where do you find that? Is it actually on website? Yeah, so if you search for that, facts and values, his name is Ken Quarry, and uh, you'll find this paper from the British Journal of Sports Medicine. Yeah. And he talks about the things that I'm very uneloquently trying to say now in, in a much more academic, structured way. And what it boils down to is that the acceptance of risk is a philosophical question that each person makes and what the sport can do 
is intervene to make that risk as low as possible and reasonable and then just communicate to people what yeah. it is. Well, the reason why I ask the question is that my perception has always been that the higher up the sort of hierarchy of rugby development you get, the stronger you become, you're doing some gym work, you're doing all that sort of thing. And at the higher level, obviously, those, those players are massively better prepared than somebody who would be 14, 15, 16. But then the, the disparity between somebody who's, you know, a 16-year-old is very massively in terms of their size so you'll get a, a 16 year old that will have matured early uh, be competing against somebody who might not have gone through puberty as quickly and suddenly is competing against and the reason why i say that is because when i was at school i was a certainly a late developer and i was basically playing rugby against men and i was still a boy so I, that's why i was surprised that there has that 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 there are not as many injuries at that level when there's such a disparity in size and preparation um, at that less amateur, at that more amateur and, and younger period. And there's no doubt that conditioning protects players. Yeah. I mean, if you put you or I on a field <laughs> against a Springbok or an all-black rugby player, even running at 50%, I'd be surprised if we got 10 tackles in without a bad injury. Well, what happened but to a, us if we took a tackle flat out? From, oh, I reckon, would he break bones? I reckon three of my four major joints would be done. <laughs> Um, I don't know about breaking bone. It's, it's hard to break a bone unless the bone yeah. gets struck in exactly the right place. But ligaments, joints, muscles. I mean, if I try to tackle a 105 kilograms running at me, dropping the shoulder, my, my shoulders wouldn't stay in their sockets. Yeah. That's for and sure. And that's preparation, really, because they can deal with that at that level because they're prepared for it. Right. So that's the demand for that's the demand imposed on them by the game. They respond by training. But the point is that the kinetic energy at the professional level. So remember, if you're high school physics, mass velocity squared is so much higher than it is for a 14, 15-year-old playing. Yeah. The speed into contact and the inertia, the momentum, the energy is so much lower for kids, and that's why the risk will be, will be significantly low because an injury is, a, is the result of a transfer of energy from one person to the next. The next yeah. so, so conditioning protects, no doubt, but the problem again in the professional game is that they're making collectively 200 tackles a match. Yeah. In the junior game, it's 105 or whatever. So not only are you less exposed to the risk event, mm. but the risk event is itself less dangerous because the speed, the mass, the momentum, the energies and so forth. So so children's rugby is considerably safer than adult. Yeah, and but ad adolescent rugby, would you put in the same category as children's rugby? Yeah, up to the age of about 16. And then, yeah. and then it starts to get um, – then the injury rate starts to get higher. So when you track it by age, you see it's almost like a – an inflection point from post-adolescence and the injury numbers start going up. Okay. Uh, by 18, by 20, which is where the world under 20, the, the junior, junior world championships happens, the injury risk there is about half to two-thirds that of the professional game. And then when we get to the professional game, and we know this because there are a number of different people who study this, you see, and we'll talk about this quite a bit, 80 to 90 injuries per thousand hours. So... Per 1,000 hours of rugby, you'll get 80 to 90 injuries. Now, what does that mean? Yeah, is that high or low? I have no idea. Well, well it's high relative to other sports because it's a contact sport, but okay. it's similar to rugby league, Australian football, and to American football. Contact so by, sports by are all in the same ballpark. By that definition, are we then saying that rugby is a more dangerous sport than most sports? Well, it's a contact sport, so yeah. of course. Um, you know, the least safe sport is darts because you might get you might trip over the... Or spill your beer. Or spill your yeah. <laughs> so so the the contact sports are obviously more dangerous than 
than uh, than the non-contact ones. This is this is obvious, but people. There's also so so there are many people who call for rugby to be banned or for tackling to be banned in kids and so forth. But I don't think they appreciate that sometimes people want contact. Yeah. And some people play rugby because of the contact. Mm. They like the physicality and the physical contest. You it's know, part of the game. You've had you've had two sons. I mean, the kids, boys want to wrestle. Yeah. Sometimes girls want to wrestle. Yeah. Because there's there's something about us that actually gravitates towards that behavior, and rugby offers that in a formalized setting. So, again, I'm not going to sit here and prognosticate about you should or you shouldn't accept that risk. It's everyone's call. Read what Ken Quarry's written. Make your own decisions based on what we're about to talk about. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about what we're going to talk about, and that is about the, the, the individual issues around rugby injuries. Um, Ross, you've been working for the last year or so with the World Rugby at the moment. Just give us a, a background about what your mandate from them was around this issue of law changes and safety within the game. Yeah, so the, the, the chief medical officer of World Rugby is an Australian guy called Martin Raftery, and he somehow read my website, and I'd written an article about talent ID, criticizing 10,000 hours and specialization, all the stuff we spoke about on this very podcast yep. recently. Episode 10. Yep. There you go, episode 10. Have a listen. Yep. Uh, and he invited me to talk at a rugby conference to the medical officers and so forth. That was my first meeting with him. I thought nothing would come of it, but about 18 months later, he emails me and says, listen, we are starting in rugby now to gather more and more evidence and we need some research to back up our decisions. Would you like to come and work? And at this stage, I was I was more than happy to jump ship from UCT. So I said, absolutely, when do I start? And so at the start of 2015, I went in there and I said to him, what will my main work involve? And he said, concussion. Now, and this is important for those listening, particularly in England and the, well, the UK and, and Ireland. As a South African, I thought, what's the big deal? Yeah. Because this isn't in the news. Like, what do you mean concussion's the biggest issue for, for rugby? And I flew over to Dublin in 2015, and literally that week, I was there for five days. Every single day, there was an article in the newspaper about the danger of rugby and how tackling should be banned and how rugby's causing brain damage and so forth. And this was a real eye-opener to me because here in South Africa, we, we, we knew what it was, but it wasn't a massive talking point. Yeah. Um, and so I realized that culturally there were differences around concussion. And that was four years ago, four and a bit years ago. So, so just, to, just to step back a little bit there. So at that point, was there a real concern from World Rugby that because of all this publicity, it was actually going to affect the future of the game unless they addressed it? Yeah, not just publicity. And I know this will sound trite to many people, but I think there's a genuine concern on the part of those running rugby that we want to make the game safer. So Martin's main mission since 2011 when he started in that position, was to address the concussion issue. Yeah. You know, prior to that, rugby's biggest medical concern was catastrophic injuries. So now we're talking spinal injuries that either are life-changing or life-ending. And catastrophic injury was the number one priority. But by about 2011, people had started to realize that concussions were happening and being ignored or overlooked, yeah. misdiagnosed. What was happening across the Atlantic in the NFL was really important because they were facing lawsuits as a consequence of not being upfront and honest with players about the risks of head injury, brain injuries during NFL, American football. They, that's, I mean, that is an interesting question just to stop on that point, is that because of this issue, there's obviously there's concern about whether rugby will be responsible down the line. Mm. But just to talk a little bit about that, there's been movies made about this around the NFL. I still don't understand how a player who has voluntarily taken place 
taking part in a game can then sue a body because they didn't do enough to prevent potential injuries. Are they saying that they knew about the problems, but they didn't address them? Or was it just a case of nobody really knew what the risks were? Seems a little unfair in some respects. I think the biggest issue, and I'm not super familiar with the lawsuit. Listeners may know that there were eventually there was a lawsuit because a group of players got together in a class action and accused the NFL of basically knowing there was a problem but hiding its severity and also neglecting to provide treatment once a concussion had been diagnosed. And I think that is the key factor is once you've identified a concussed player, what do you do with them? Yeah. Do you send them straight back into the fi- onto the field? Do you expose them to risks of second, third, fourth impacts immediately after concussion or do you manage them conservatively? And I think that was the bigger issue there because – and you'll know that they they end up – Will Smith plays a character in one of the movies, yeah. um, a doctor called Bennett Amalu who identifies this condition called CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is a result of repeated – in theory, repeated brain injuries. Dad, you said that, not me. So chronic meaning over time yeah. from repeat exposures. Traumatic because it's a it's an it's an injury. It's a blow to the head, and encephalo mean meaning head, pathy meaning pathology. So it's okay. brain brain pathology as a result of repeated injuries over time. That's okay. literally what it boils down to if you unpack it. Um, and there's still considerable controversy over the link between concussions and CTE. Yeah. Uh, you know, some people argue that it's clear. Other people say it's non-existent. The truth is probably in between. And the irony is that in American football, the I mean, you'll correct me if I'm wrong about this, that the actual issues around um, head trauma and injuries, that, that the helmet actually is more of a factor in causing brain injuries than if you weren't wearing a helmet in American football. Yes, and their immediate solution to the concussion problem was better helmets which yeah. I don't think really helps. It might be that in the future, and they, they believe that they're getting there now, is helmets that are so good that they actually do start to lower that risk. But what the helmet does is it gives you license to use your head as a weapon. Yeah. And no matter how good the helmet is, that's not going to help because concussions are not the result of direct impact to the head. They are the result of the movement and the forces that happen inside the skull as the brain moves around in the head. Yeah, And so you get, for instance, think about whiplash. There's no head contact at all, but you can be concussed because there's a certain inertia and it creates these shear forces, these internal accelerations, and that's what causes the damage to the brain that leads to the traumatic brain injury. Yeah. Um, so, so better helmets, whilst theoretically reducing the risk, might actually give license to do behaviors that actually create the risk in the first place. So in that, in that respect, rugby is slightly safer from a head injury perspective, I mean, can we make that conclusion or is that a bit of a stretch? That's part of the reason. Yeah. The other reason is that in American football, you don't have to use the arms. Yes. And so that's a collision. I mean, that literally is just two massive units weighing 120 or kilograms or more, 140 in that front lineman, hitting one another with as much force as possible without yeah. any need to bind. So it's yeah. two 10-pin bowling balls coming in opposite directions against one another. Yeah. So the requirement to use the arms in rugby is a huge reducer of risk. And that's one of the reasons why shoulder charges, especially to the head, are being sanctioned so severely. So so anyway, we've <coughs> excuse me, we've gone on to some risk factor issues now. But the but the point was that contact sports will always be a bit more dangerous. Rugby recognized this in 2011. And so all of a sudden, concussion becomes 
the number one focus on the player welfare side of the business, not just because of the threat of lawsuits and the desire to maintain the perception of, of rugby as, as it's, not, it's not safe, but safer, um, but for genuine reasons, like how can we manage these injuries better? And also potentially to mitigate future lawsuits, I'd imagine. That is, of course, a concern. Yeah. I mean, you look at the NFL now, I was listening the other day, apparently there's only one company willing to insure American football players. Yeah. Uh, now, when, when that happens, then you've got major threat to the viability of the sport because what insurance can you then have in, against future risk and so forth? So if that were to happen, then, then contact sports yeah. would be under major threat. So since you got involved in World Rugby, what has happened in this process since 2015 when you started? Well, a lot, a lot happened before yeah, and a lot happens even with my involvement there outside of World Rugby because there are literally dozens if not hundreds of people studying these questions. Mm. But before, and I think it's really interesting to take people on this journey, in 2011 there was no mechanism to identify a concussed player on the field. The doctor had to run onto the field, make an assessment – and then either remove the player permanently or keep him out there. So the guy would take a hit to the head, let's say in a tackle, and he'd go down. The doctor runs on. They worked out that he's got 64 seconds, that doctor, to run onto the field in a stadium of 50,000 screaming people <laughs> under pressure in the 63rd minute. There's a two-point gap between teams, and he's got to make a call. Is this player concussed, yes or no? How would he have done that? Well, he would have looked at him. He would have said, how many fingers am I holding up? <laughs> he would have looked for signs. I mean, there's some obvious signs. If the player loses consciousness, yeah. then it's a fairly easy call. But that doesn't often happen. In fact, it's far less likely that a player loses consciousness but still, should still have been removed. All so right. he'd look at him. He'd look for signs of dizziness, confusion, nausea, and so forth, and he'd make that call. But it shouldn't surprise people to learn that most of the time they would leave the player on and then after the match, the symptoms would be identified and the player would be diagnosed as concussed. And in fact, 56% is the figure. Of That's people the, that were concussed that stayed on the field? That would later be diagnosed as okay. concussed and stayed on the field. Now, if you link 56% sure. to 64 seconds, no surprise. I mean, how, sure. it's, it's impossible to ask a doctor to, to make that call on a complex condition in a yeah. minute and four seconds. So what's the solution? The solution is time and knowledge. You have to find the doctor the time and you have to give the doctor the tools to better diagnose the injury. And that's where the initiative came in for temporary substitutions. So now you could take the player off and put another player on so that the, the, the damage to the team is minimized. Yeah. But you'd get what was initially five minutes to make that assessment. So now you could take him away from the screaming fans into the quiet, relative quiet of a change room, a medical room, and do a more formalized controlled assessment. Five minutes wasn't enough, but it was a start. It became 10. And so where we are now is what's called the head injury assessment protocol, where if a player is identified, he's removed for 10 minutes, he's assessed using a standardized tool, screening tool, that, that checks off all the things, balance, memory, cognitive function, symptoms. And if he passes that, then he can return for his temporary substitution, or if he fails that, then he stays off and is subsequently assessed again. Well, he's assessed again irrespective of whether he passes or fails. So the tool got a lot better. And the fact that, the fact that teams were now able to make these temporary substitutions lowered the barrier to diagnosis. Yeah, That makes sense. Because before that, he's either off for good or he stays on. 
Yeah. So of course the default is let's leave him on and see how he goes. Whereas now you could actually get him off and it meant that you would now have more concussions diagnosed. And sure enough, when you look at the record prior to 2011, you see very few concussions. 2012, 2013, 2014, up and up and up and up. And that's that's not a real increase. It's not like there were more concussions happening. Most diagnosis. Mostly it's just awareness yeah. because people are now looking for them. It's education and it's, it's, it's a tool and the lowering of what – so we call this lowering the diagnostic threshold because now you could actually make the diagnosis. So concussions went from five per thousand hours of rugby to – 17, 18, even 20 per thousand hours, and it becomes the most prevalent injury in the sport. Okay. So by 2015, when I'm coming on board to do my little bit, it's now the most prevalent injury by, by a fair margin. And the focus is having not sorted out, but having vastly improved. Remember I said 56% of players used to stay on the field and later get diagnosed concussed? Yeah. That figure now is 6 to 7%. Yeah, which so is just, the result. Which is the result, and that's a good thing. It's meant more concussions, and people look at that and say, oh, it's getting worse and worse. No way, it's getting better and better because right. you're missing few of them. They were always there, just you didn't know it. So I come on, and now the focus is, right, we've, we've not fixed, but we've improved diagnosis and management. Can we prevent them from happening? And that's where the big focus went. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And then, so what was the conclusion after that? I mean, what, what, what was your job to do now? What is the, what is the focus now? Well, now we're on prevention. Right. And this is a really, this for me is a fascinating, it was new to me. How do you prevent something? Yeah. And there's a very, there's a very, not formalized, but there's a very logical process that's followed. And just for anyone listening to this, if you, if you survived thus far and you're a marathon runner with no interest in rugby, this, this concept of prevention of anything is, a, is an extremely valuable tool that you can use. If you, yeah. let's say you're always injured, shin splints, or you always get sick, the flu and common colds and so forth. What, I'm a, what we're about to talk about in the next 10, 15 minutes will help you also. So let me throw this to you. Imagine you, Mike, were asked by the Cape Town government mm. to sort out road traffic incidents in Cape Town. What's the very first thing you do every single time? Well, I'd probably find out what the cause of the accidents were or cause of accidents was. Um, and then I suppose trying to figure out the easiest solution. Yeah, I'm so, not a problem solver, as you can see. No, but but anyone can be. So that's the <laughs> second and third thing. Yeah. The first thing you do is you describe the problem. Yeah. Because how do you fix something if you don't quantify that thing? Right. So the very first thing you do is you ask, how often does it happen? Yeah. So that you've got a baseline. That's now going to be your target to lower that over the course of the next however many years. The second thing you do is you try and identify what causes that problem. So you do a very specific study, and that's what we tried to do in 2015-16, was we did a study, we knew how many concussions were happening. We knew that there were, on average, two concussions every three matches. 
We knew that a player on average would be removed for head injury every match. Right. Then we said, right, what causes it? When is a concussion or a head injury most likely to happen? Is it in the tackle? Is it after a kick? Is it in a ruck? Is it in a scrum? Because once you've identified the location of the injury, then you can go even deeper and you can say, right, now within a tackle, who's more likely to get injured? Why is he likely to get injured? What are the circumstances around that tackle that increase the risk as opposed to decrease the risk? And so this was a big study. That was I mean, how, yeah, tell us a bit about the study. How many... How do you find that many data points? Well, World Rugby, so Martin, part of the, part of the brilliance of, of the strategy that Martin put in place was that every single time a team used a temporary substitution, it was a data point. So yeah. we had a record that a player had left the field with a head injury, and we also have video footage of every single one of those cases. Okay. So wow. we've got this massive library where we know that a head injury happened and we know where it happened in which game, and therefore we can look at the video. So we had a guy whose name's Ben Hester, unbelievably good analyst. He's a, he's, he watches video and he codes it. And so we sat with coaches and doctors and other researchers and so forth, and we said, right, what are the things we need to look at? Okay, tackle type, um, direction of the players, front on, side on, from behind, um, speed of the players, Where's the contact? Is it high, low? Is it legs? Is it shoulders? Is it stomach? Is it head to head? So uh, acceleration, which of the players was accelerating into contact? Um, what were some of the others? How many players were involved in the incident? Yeah. And so we put together what's basically a template for analysis. And then Ben is the engine of the study. He, he goes away and we had 611 of these head injuries and he codes wow. every single one of them. He says, how did it happen? How many tacklers, direction, speed, acceleration, where's the contact, body position of the players. And then he also, and this is an important point, is he also looks at three and a half thousand tackles that didn't cause an injury. So now you've got a picture of what causes the head injury. In a way, that's your baseline. Yeah, that's your that's what's called your denominator. Right. Right? And it's really important. Do you understand why? Is because we have a picture of risk, we know what causes the injury. And we have a picture of non-risk, things that don't cause injuries. And we can then start to say, when is it more likely or less likely for an injury to occur? So for instance, um, again, coming back to my analogy of cars and uh, road accidents, there will be more car accidents than motorbike accidents. Why? Because there are 10 times more cars than there are motorbikes, 100 times more. Yeah. So unless you know how many cars and how many bikes there are, you can't quantify risk. Yeah. So the whole point of that study was to quantify how many times is there a low tackle? How many times is there a high tackle? And of those high tackles, how many caused injury? Of those low tackles, how many caused injury? So right. we, can, we can end up working out basically per 1,000 of each tackle type wow, okay. how many injuries happen. So what did it churn up, all so, this data? Okay, three or four key findings, and I'll, I'll bullet point them. I've written articles on my website where yeah. you can find summaries There's of all these things. a lot of very cool stuff on there. Number one, tackler is much more likely to be injured than the tackled player, which is really interesting. Yeah. So 76% of all head injuries happen in the tackle. That's not majorly surprising. So it's the, it's the defender. But the defender is the one who's more at risk than the ball carrier. Right. Which is really interesting. Yeah. Because it's counterintuitive slightly. All other injuries are the other way around. It's more often the ball carrier whose knee, shoulder, whatever it is, gets injured. When it comes to head injuries, it's the player who initiates the event who's actually at risk of the injury. Right. 
that's that's particularly challenging because of how you figure out a solution, right? Yeah, we'll uh, get to the solution shortly. So tackler's most at risk. When in the tackle, the answer is some obvious. High speed, that makes sense. High acceleration, makes sense. Front on tackles, also fairly obvious. You've got two players in opposite directions. The, the collision force is going to be higher. And then the third one is active shoulder tackle. That's a dominant tackle is more likely to injure. So those are obvious. Less maybe obvious are the height of the contact. Higher tackles are more likely to injure players than lower tackles. And the body position, if a tackler is upright, is more likely to be injured than if he's bent at the waist. And those two things are related because an upright tackler's head is more likely to make high contact with an opponent. Okay. So, I mean, that's fairly obvious other than the one, the fact that the defender is the one most likely to be injured. So, okay. So how do you... What, how, how do you conclude what the solution is then from that? So we don't. So like as okay. a scientist or Martin as a medical doctor, this is where our this is where we hand the baton over to someone else because it's not our job. It would actually be inappropriate for me to tell rugby players and coaches how to solve the problem. So having described the issues, we now bring together a group of experts. So this is players, coaches, medical officials, uh, referees, and we say to them, right, this is the picture of risk. This is what causes the risks in rugby. You are the experts. You tell us how we shift from high risk to low risk. So basically, you can imagine there's a spectrum of risk, and we've got high risk on the one side. So higher contact tackles, upright players, high speed, front on. And we say to them, right, we want to move away from this area towards low risk, lower tackles, bent at the waist players. What do you reckon we do? Yeah. And so there was a meeting that was held in Dublin in 2016, in August, September, at which we had these coaches. So Eddie Jones was there, Paul O'Connell from the Ireland and the, and the, and the Lions. Uh, we had a, one of the top women's players, Elaine Roland was a ref, Gus Pisha was at that meeting. And it was a two-day meeting thrashing out these issues. Yeah. And their solutions were, you've, you've got to change the technique of players to put them in what are safer positions. Yeah. Now, what's a safer position? Based on the research, Safer is lower and bent at the waist. Right. So you want to get rid of contacts where the tackler's head is near the shoulder or head of the ball carrier. So imagine you're, the, you're carrying the ball, you're the attacker, and I'm tackling you. What we want to eliminate or reduce is my head and your head sharing airspace. Right. Because that's two bowling balls yeah. hitting one hitting another. Hitting each other, yeah. So we want my head to be near your the, – the safest place to be will be near your trunk, your upper body. Yeah. So from your sternum to your hips. Yeah. So, so in other words, a traditional tackle that they teach you at school exactly. is arguably the best. Exactly. And, you know, when we came out with this, a lot of people said, well, that's how I learned to tackle at school. Yeah. But what's interesting is the modern game has changed. Yeah, it's and about so stopping players rather than tackling them. And stopping the ball, Yeah, especially. So a lot of coaches are instructing players to tackle the ball because that way you prevent the offload. Yeah. And you can also, and it's a strategy used by teams now, is if you can tackle the player high and hold him up, then – once your supporting teammates arrive, you can keep holding them up. You get the scrum put in if you can create a mall off that situation. So even when I was with the South African Sevens team, we used to call that a jam tackle. Other people call it different things. But it's become a tactical method to gain advantage. Yeah. And so we've moved away from the classic textbook tackle towards this upright tackle, which has, I think, created some of the risk. So the message was, all right, you've got to get the technique changed, get the player lower, so how do you do that? And this is where it gets tricky because 
the player you're trying to protect is the tackler. But the laws are almost exclusively written to protect the ball carrier. Yeah. So how, is there a law change you can make that protects the tackler from himself? So this becomes the big paradox. Yeah. And I hope that listeners will appreciate that you can do it because if you, if you sanction the undesirable behavior more harshly, that's a message to avoid that behavior. Yeah. So what the expert group advised us was, was a couple things. Number one is increase the sanction for high tackles because these are already illegal. I'm not allowed to hit your head yeah. when I tackle you. Yeah. And they said, well, if you increase the sanction for that and make it more severe and you give it more often, it will tell the coaches and players that they must be careful about the head and that will force them to tackle slightly lower. Now, tackling slightly lower benefits both players. It benefits the ball carrier because his head is now completely out of danger, yeah. but it also benefits the tackler because his head is now moving from high danger, which was, remember, when it's shared airspace with your head, yeah. to low danger when it's more in line with your sternum and below, your upper body, your trunk, your upper legs. Yeah. And so that's the shift we wanted. So, so the law change was to more harshly punish high tackles in order to put the tackler in a safer position. And yeah. so it's an, it's an indirect method. Does it make sense to you? So, so this law was now 2019, wasn't it? I mean, that's, so, is, so that, the, is that how it's, how is the law written like that? We've what, taken what two steps to get to 2019. Yeah. The first one was in the beginning of 2017, we introduced a zero tolerance to high contact directive which basically identified reckless and accidental head contact. So those terms had never existed before in the law yeah. and it more harshly increased the sanctions for ta high tackles. So what we were trying for there, imagine that the sanction, the referee penalizing and giving cards is the stick. We were trying to use the stick to drive the behavior. Yeah. And the behavior was tackle lower because we thought that would benefit both players. What happened was there was a 64% increase in penalties and there was a 41% increase in yellow cards. Yeah. Now those are those were anticipated changes and they yeah. are good changes because they're sending a message that high contact is dangerous. The problem was people interpreted it to be protecting the ball carrier. Yeah. But it was actually protecting both. Yeah. In theory. I hope that and makes sense. I suppose sense. that that number will go down as players become more used to the rule. Well, and as referees become more complacent about enforcing the rule. And that's what we found. <laughs> we don't and we want don't, that though, do you? No, no. That's, that's, so what we found was in the first year, so for 2017, penalties are up, yellow cards are up. 2018, they've started drifting down. Yeah. And I hope, I hope you can appreciate studying this is hugely onerous. I mean, Ben watched 4,000 clips to get this data. <laughs> and I then analyzed 4,000. So we can't just in a week produce another study. Yeah. So we don't know whether the, the drifting back down is because players have actually changed or whether it's because the referees are simply now gone back to how they used to. But what you want is players changing. You want the behavior than, yeah. change. Yeah. yeah, We do know just incidentally that the concussion numbers drifted down after that was implemented. Yeah. So around the world for the first time since 2011, concussion has started to come back down. Yeah. Now that's one year and it's a complex environment. So I'm not going to sit here and say our change caused a drop in concussion. Yeah. It could be random. But the signs are it, good. The signs are good. So we're yeah. encouraged to keep pushing it. Yeah. But the problem was that the, the initial increase in penalties and cards 
suddenly wasn't happening anymore. Yeah. And the other problem was that there was so much inconsistency. Mm. So in some places, cards went up. In some places, cards went down, but penalties went up. And so there was a lot of confusion about what is a yellow card? What is a red card? When is it only a penalty? And that was what led to where we are today. So towards the end of last year, a number of people within rugby said, can we please have clarity on when is a high tackle meant to be a penalty, a yellow card, or a red card? And that was what led to the development of this high tackle sanction framework. So we, we sat down and we said, right, let's be ultra methodical here. And let's develop some kind of system that the referee can use so that in as few steps as possible, we can arrive at, at, a, at a decision that people agree on. You know, so if you, if you have five people watching the same incident, you'll get three different viewpoints. Yeah. Which of them is right? The framework is intended to get more agreement between those five people. Yeah. And so, so that's, that's where we are now. So this framework came out in, in May this year was used with the under 20s and it's in use now and it basically asks the referee to ask three simple questions well the first thing he's got to do is he's got to decide is he looking at a high tackle or a shoulder charge yeah the second thing then he asks three questions he says is there head contact is the danger high or low are there mitigating factors and based on those three questions he gives the decision so my so hope what, is so what are the, what are those three questions first question is is there head contact? Yes okay, or no? All right. oh, those are the questions. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. If he says yes, right. he asks, is the danger high or low? If it's high, his start point is a red card. So what we're saying is that if High in terms of what the player did to so create we came a dangerous up, situation. Right. So World Rugby yeah. came up with a list of what indicates high danger. Right. And, and that was, again, based on research. So these are not well, arbitrary. Give us, give us an example of what is, what is seen as high danger. Tackler enters the tackle at high speed. Right. Tacker completes the tackle. In other words, I follow through as opposed to like pulling out. Yeah. Um, tackler leaves the ground during contact. In other words, I jump okay. or run into you. A rigid arm as opposed to a soft sort of passive arm making yeah. the tackle. Yeah. So there was a list of six of them. And this is all available for people to find. So if, if the referee sees any of those, he says, well, the actions of the tackler created danger to, to the right. opponent. So therefore, we are going to say high danger. So if he, sees, if he sees head contact at high danger, his entry point is a red card. Yeah. Then he asks, do I see mitigating factors? And again, there's a list of these that he yeah. can consider. So for instance, does the ball carrier slip or drop suddenly in height? Yeah, which often happens. Which often happens. Yeah. Is the ball carrier being tackled by another player that forces his height down? Yeah. Is he unsighted prior to the tackle? Is it a reactionary tackle where he reflexively sticks out an arm? And if the referee sees a mitigating factor, then he goes down one, one level. Yeah. So having arrived at an initial red card, he then gives a yellow. Or if the danger was low and he says it's yellow, he might give only a penalty. Yeah. So it's, it's one, two, three. Yes, no. High, low. Yes, no. And the idea is that that will make it far simpler for people to understand. And that there's this framework so that even if we disagree, we now know why. So, because, it's, a more, so it's a more objective way of making these decisions rather than previously, which was more subjective. I mean, it's still partly subjective as to <laughs> what the risk is, but it's still it's easier to then say, here's the, here's the things we can tick off. Yes, it's a red card or a yellow card. And it has to be subjective yeah. because there's a human being using the tool. Yeah. And so you are relying on the skill and the wisdom and the experience of that ref to make those calls. And it's too complex to make it purely objective. 
Yeah. So the referee retains control. But the idea is that, and, and this happens not only for referees, there's this perception that you just know it when you see it. Yeah. But that's not the case. Even yeah. medical doctors, when you go to, to a doctor because you wake up with a sore neck or back or throat or spots on your face, whatever it is, that doctor is going to diagnose you using the same process as this. Yeah. He's going to ask, yeah. do I see this, yes or no? If yes, do this. If no, do that. Yeah. Next question, asks a question, yes, <laughs> no. And so the, the, and, and, it's, and it's because just in the same way the doctors don't just know a condition when they see it, neither do referees. Yeah. So you're trying to guide their thinking yeah. um, and arrive at a consistent decision. And I think the beauty of it is it won't eliminate disagreement. It'll reduce it. But even when we disagree, we'll know why. Because you'll watch a tackle and you'll say, head contact, yes, degree of danger, low. Yeah. I might say hi. Okay, now we can agree to disagree, but at least we know why. Yeah. Whereas in the past, he said red card, I said yellow card, and now I thought you were a fool and you thought I was an idiot. Yeah. Um, so it's, not, it's no longer about the feels. It's about what does the process dictate, and then I'm going to explain to you my decision. You can have your opinions, but at least it's transparent. Yeah. I mean, there was an interesting... Um incident uh, a little couple of weeks ago with the New Zealand All Black game when one of the Australian players went, uh, sorry, Australian All Black game when one of the Aussie players, uh, I think it was actually the All Black that went into the neck of one of the Aussie players. And it's quite actually, when you watch the replay of that, it's very difficult to see the incident. But when you watch it from from one angle, it's quite a deliberate a shoulder charge, even though it's not one of those classic high tackle kind of maneuvers. So, and that's where the, the where the rule was employed quite effectively, and most people agree that it was correctly um, used in that situation. Yeah, unless you were wearing a black jersey watching that game, <laughs> you didn't you didn't have a problem with that. It looked, yeah. And I would argue that even even five years ago, that was a stone cold red card because it was a shoulder charge straight yeah. to the head of the opponent. But then but that you was see the, the, the interesting part about that is that the opponent on that occasion was actually dropping to the floor when the all-black player came in at that point. And when you look at it, you, there is some justification to say that the dropping of the player, I mean, it's very difficult to go the way he, where he hits him on the back of the head. Um, you couldn't aim for that. There was some element of just bad luck, but he did go with the shoulder, not the arms. Right, so had, he gone, had he gone with that right arm out to make it a wrap tackle, I think he might have got away with a yellow card. Yeah. But, but he didn't go with the arms. And so we've we've defined a shoulder yeah. charge now. You yeah. know, people will say I didn't wrap. That's not a definition of a shoulder charge anymore. We've we've got this definition for a shoulder charge now where the arm is tucked in a sling position or it's behind the player at the point at which he makes contact yeah. with that shoulder. Yeah. And it's quite clear that in that instance, Barrett from New Zealand, the arm is in a sling position. Yeah. So that's the behavior that actually leads to the red card eventually. Yeah. Had, he, had, he, had he avoided the head and he makes a sling contact to the body, he'd get a yellow card. And I reckon had he come with his arm out, the referee might have been a little bit kinder to him and said, well, the Australian player is low to the ground, yeah. but I can see that you've tried to wrap. Yeah. And you've come with an arm, so it's a yellow card, not a red card. But it's a, I mean, it, the reason why it's so interesting is because it is that rule about what the intention of the player is at that time, even though if he'd hit him on the back with that shoulder charge, maybe he wouldn't have been penalised because the, it didn't look so bad. Mm. But it was the intent of the player not to wrap the arms, which was the key factor yes, but that, the, wasn't it? So what the framework does is it is it tries to help the referee not read the mind of the yeah, tackler. Yeah. Because this this issue about intent, there was no intent. Well, what are you, a mind reader? How do you know what I intended or didn't know what to do? So instead of asking the referee to interpret and guess 
at the intent of the tackler. We ask him to assess what were the tackler's behaviors. Yeah. And if the tackler does things that are high in risk, then he's on the severe sanction pathway. He's, you know, he's heading towards red card. Yeah. Unless there's something in mitigation, then he might find himself only given a yellow card. So, so it removes the, the, the guesswork from the process. I think that's one of its big strengths. Yeah. And you're right, that's the, that's the biggest, that's the highest profile one so far. Yeah. Uh, there have been a few others in Curry Cup. There was one the same day. At the under-20s, there were four red cards at that tournament. The World Cup, the World, uh, world Championship. Under-20 World yeah. Cup. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, obviously, I hope there's not one in the semi or the final of the World Cup yeah. because it, it just sucks the headlines away. Yeah. Um, and I'm not, I'm not trying to say I want to be soft on these contacts. In some regards, having it happen at a major high-profile event will actually be good. Yeah. Um, you know, tip tackles where you lifted the player and then dropped him on his head, yeah. those used to be extremely common in rugby. And then in the 2011 World Cup semi-final, Elaine Roland, who's the current referee head for World Rugby, sent one of Wales's star players, Sam Warburton, off early on in that semi-final for that tackle. And it sent such a strong message that the behavior almost disappeared. Yeah. yeah. So you're trying to get rid of the behavior that is high risk. I mean, one of the criticisms of making the game safer is that you might even take the entertainment value away. And we've seen some of the tweets about this talking about, you know, once you start safeguarding the players in this way, it takes away the sort of, it becomes a bit of a softer game. Is that a, is that a concern for world rugby? Um, is it something that's justified in saying that the more, the, the safer you make it, the less of a, of a tough, hard man's game it is? It's a concern to me when I hear it because it really like elevates my blood pressure. Well, it's a non-scientific question, which I like asking you once in a while. No, I don't mind that it's a non-scientific <laughs> question, but I hear this and you know where it really like hacks me off is when former players who sit in the comforts of studios, having retired six years ago, now start saying game's gone soft. Yeah. Because they don't appreciate that, first of all, soft and safe are not synonymous, right? Yeah. So it can be hell of a hard, but still be safer. Yeah. Now there is no there's no trivialization of head injuries. Like these are not these players are not gladiators who are out there putting their brains on the line for our entertainment. I find it I find it extraordinary when people say our oh, game's gone soft because the the forces and the physicality of rugby today in 2019 is higher than it's ever been. Yeah. The the you you watch games like uh, New Zealand Australia that game South Africa New Zealand that was 16 all draw recently it's cataclysmically intense. Yeah. Huge, huge, huge impact. There's nothing soft There's about it. There's nothing soft about that. But when it comes to protecting the brain, that's not that's not soft. That's just sensible. So so there is a concern about that perception because it's such an easy criticism to throw at the sport, but in my opinion, uh, the game's never been more intense. Yeah. But when we're trying to protect the heads of players, and you start to allege that it's soft. What are you saying? Are you saying that you're okay with brain injury? Yeah. Like, come on, man. Yeah, get, it's good get, putting it. get back onto earth here. Like, and, and especially to the pundits and the former players. And this was the controversy that led to the framework being developed is you'd get a red card and the player would say, oh, and this happened in England last year. Guy said, I'm glad I'm retiring now because it looks like the game's getting really soft. Like, <laughs> you fool. When you, when you look at the potential consequences of some of these injuries, People are retiring more than ever because of persistent concussions. Pat Lambie, who yeah. was well a prodigious youngster for South Africa, like probably never got to reach his full potential because yeah. he had one concussion after the next and just his symptoms never went away. Yeah. 
And there were loads of players. New Zealand's had, off the top of my head, I can think of two, maybe a third, who've retired because they just cannot overcome the symptoms, the persistent symptoms of concussion. And so, so the, yeah, it's really easy to sit there drinking champagne from a box yeah. or watching it on your television and say, oh, look how soft it is when someone else has to face the risk, not you. So the question is, how... I mean, physicality is part of the game of rugby. I mean, if you look at Springbok rugby versus some of the other teams out there, physicality is a big part of their game. I went to talk for, with John Smith, the former Springbok captain, the other day, and they were asking him about what was the value of having a big monster pack as opposed to a more mobile pack. And he was saying that the monster pack gives you time, gives the fly half time because there's more power up front and mm. it gives you a little bit of an edge at that, at that level. If you accept that the game is physical – does not the rule change make the game less physical? In other words, if you're, if the ball carrier can't be tackled high and or it's not as as not as reported or or sanctioned, um, it makes the game. In other words, the game will potentially move away to a less physical game, to a game that is more skill based, which might well, not necessarily be a bad thing. You can, as a player, still hit that guy with a ball so hard that his fillings pop out. And be completely legal. And be completely legal. Yeah. There's no, there's no, whatever law change exists is not meant to take this, the impact out of the tackle and to take the physicality out of the game. All it is is to direct where you apply that physical force. Yeah. And, and especially remember, and I can't stress this enough, it's to protect you also. Yeah, the so, tackler. So I'm tackling you, Mike. We want you, we want, World Rugby wants me to tackle you where the contact is my shoulder to your upper body or legs potentially, depending on the context. We don't want to take your choice away, but what we're saying is that if I fly in and I hit your head or my head hits your head and I'm in huge danger then, we know that's the most common yeah. cause of a head injury by far in terms of risk, then there's consequences for that. Yeah. It doesn't tell me that I must slow down or that I must softly tackle you and gently bring you down on a bed of feathers <laughs> like again, I can I can I can hit you unbelievably hard. You watch that New Zealand uh, Australia game this past weekend. I, I made a note actually. At seventy one minutes thirty, Kieran Reed tackles an Australian guy so hard that the crowd gasps. <laughs> Perfectly legal tackle, outstanding tackle. I want to look wins, that up straight after this podcast. He wins. I'll show it to you. Seventy one. I've got it right here. Seventy one thirty five. Unbelievably good tackle. Huge force. Yeah. Go for it. That's great. People want to see that. But if Kieran Reed goes 10 centimeters higher, or if Kieran Reed puts his head in a space where, where it could hit Reese Hodges' head, now we're talking risk of brain injury. Yeah. So I know that these are fine margins, but they're important margins if the game is to be made safe enough. And it comes back to what you asked in the beginning. Is it too dangerous? If the sport doesn't make these changes, then the answer is yes. Yeah. Because then we get to a situation where we're going to have a concussion per match. Yeah. which means that every player is likely to get injured every 60 matches, which means every player typically will have four concussions in their career. Yeah. Now, now that's not that's too much risk. Which means mommy of Johnny exactly. hears about that. And as you were saying when you started this, uh, this research, that, that the amount of publicity given to those sorts of things affects the game and means that less people will be involved in it. So right. the long-term longevity of the sport might rely on how safe the game is and how people perceive it as being safer, right? And, and it's it's there's it's not it's difficult to find reliable, believable data in the in the USA. But I've I've seen 
that the numbers of kids playing American football at school, peewee football, what they call it, has come down. Yeah. And part of that is believed to be that parents are reluctant to let their kids do this because they don't believe that the necessary steps are being taken to ensure the safety. So rugby is trying. People will, again, this is trite for me to say, and we've already said I work for them now, so if you want to interpret that as my bias, then, yeah, then, full disclosure. then go ahead. <laughs> but we are genuinely trying to reduce that risk as much as possible. Yeah. One important thing on that is that we're trying to nudge behavior. We're not trying to transformatively reduce the risk. We could do that by making it illegal to tackle above the waist. Yeah. But we're not going that far because A, that might create new risks for knees and he knees to head and ACL injuries and so forth. So it's probably not even a good idea but also we want to achieve the risk reduction with the minimal possible change in behavior. Mm -hmm. That way you can retain the DNA of the sport. And you've alluded like the physicality of rugby is part of its appeal. Yeah. So how can you, how can you change without change? That's effectively the challenge on the table here. And the, the, the sanction framework, the harsher stick and the more frequent use of that stick for high tackles is meant to protect both players with the smallest possible change to the sport. Unfortunately, people react to it as though it's radical. Yeah. And then you get misleading headlines in the other direction where they start calling it the Wild West and they say that cards are going to destroy the game and so forth. Well, do you want more concussions or yeah. do you want more cards? I'd yeah. pick more cards if it's going to potentially reduce concussions. Now, as a final point on that, I don't think this is all it's going to take. Yeah. Concussions may not move as a result of lowering the, the height because players and coaches adapt and it's such a complex thing. But together with other initiatives, we have to try and do it. And, and rugby is genuinely trying to achieve this. I think, I mean, I'm, I wouldn't qualify myself as a rugby expert by any stretch of the imagination, but one of the unintended positive consequences of this is I imagine if you're going in lower with a player, players can intentionally offload the ball better, which makes for a better game of rugby in, in all at the moment to moment. Because once players are taking players high to kind of wrap up the ball, you're suddenly down into a mall situation and you're, and you're making the game a lot less entertaining. So maybe one of these consequences of this new rule change is a more entertaining flowing game. Right, so we'll study that. We'll study yeah. how many offloads are attempted and how many yeah. of those are successful yeah. before and after the initiative. So that's part of the behavior change. And you're right, I think that would be terrific. Yeah, and you'll that's get, only good for rugby you, and the entertainment value of the You'll sport. get more line breaks and so forth. For sure. For sure. In response, coaches are probably not happy because how do they stop that? And I can think off the top of my head, what they might then have to do is flood that channel to stop the offload from, from reaching a player who can then break the line. And now you might create more traffic. Yeah. And maybe you hide the benefit to head injury risk because now you've got three players in a three meter space instead of one. Yeah. So you can see how complex it actually is. It, like every change causes two other changes. Yeah. And one it's a of constantly them, moving target at the end. Right. Of the day. And and that's yeah. that's so it's it's that's why I love this stuff because it's yeah. so complex. And so you change A to achieve B, but you also happen to achieve C. Yeah. Is C good or bad? Someone has to make that determination. So it's yeah, it's it's pretty fascinating. Um the the just just to reiterate and apologies if I'm repeating it. When that tackler does go lower and he puts his head near the hip or the trunk or the upper legs, a lot of people have said that's more dangerous because now you're going to get a head to hip and so forth. And in fact, if you watch enough of these injuries, you will see a lot of head to hips. In fact, it's the most common one. And head to knee? 
You see that much? You see them occasionally and they've got high risk, but you don't see tackles that low often. Yeah. But head to hip as a number accounts for more head injuries than any other type. But it's not a high risk event because heads are near hips a lot. Head to hip is the equivalent of car accidents. Yeah. There are many, many, many cars, and thus there are many car accidents. Okay. But head to head is like a motorbike. Yeah. They happen at much higher risk. So per thousand tackles, head to head causes one in eighty-eight head injuries. Yeah. Per thousand tackles, head to knee is one six. A uh, head to hip is one sixth of that. One in five hundred and fifty. Yeah. So just to give you an, a perception on that. So yeah. we're, we'd be quite happy with heads being near hips and upper bodies more often. And there isn't quite, I mean, I'm sorry for saying this about professional rugby, but there isn't anything quite as spectacular as watching a player coming in right in the middle of the body and almost cutting the guy in half. But it is a legal tackle and a good tackle that's, is something something quite spectacular to watch, isn't it? That's almost the, better than the, than the illegal high tackle to watch. Especially if he wins the ball yeah. because he drives that player back, his yeah. teammates come Lost over him, they, they flood over the ball, they turn it over. Yeah. That 71-30 of the match we've just spoken about, Kieran Reid does that to the Aussie. He, yeah. he knocks the ball out, they get the score. Yeah, that's that's a skill execution that wins matches yeah. potentially. Yeah. I mean, in this game, they were way ahead then. But. Let's talk a little bit about. I mean, we've already taken up an hour just talking about the concussion issue around rugby. But um, there are lots of other injuries in rugby. If you had to do number two, what, what would that be in terms of where rugby sits? I mean, are there, there was been a lot of changes around the way that scrums have been done in the in the last few years, um, and that was particularly around more spinal injuries, which are becoming less and less prevalent now in rugby. Yeah, so prior to 2011, um, and I told you the story of recognizing the concussion issue, the awareness, the education, catastrophic injuries were the key issue. They weren't common, but the severity of a catastrophic injury obviously put them number one on the list. And then that got replaced by concussion. Happily catastrophic now- Catastrophic means spinal injury. Spinal that is either life-altering or life-ending. Broken so backs. Right, yeah. pa paralysis and so forth. Yeah. And you know, the scrum was the most common cause of those injuries. Yeah, particularly collapsed scrums, and so one of the, and this precedes my involvement there. But one of the models for how you use evidence to change behaviour came from the Scrum Project, yeah. where World Rugby funded the University of Bath in England to research different sequences of setting up a scrum, and they eventually determined the one that had the lowest forces and thus the least chance of collapsing. And that's what we now have with the crouch bind set because. And we were, we were flapping earlier trying to figure out exactly when <laughs> these things happened. But it used to be crouch, touch, pause, engage. And then it's, and before that, it was, it was nothing. Yeah. Um, we were watching some footage from, the, from 1987, I think it yeah. was. And it, it's almost like, okay, there's a scrum and the players just kind of bind up and the next minute they're in the scrum. And there's no whistle, there's nothing. There's just a sort of a, a loose arrangement. Okay, we're going to hit each other. And I can imagine that the forces at international level about with no control when that scrum comes together with, with that front row must be absolutely huge. Yeah, and if it goes down and you've yeah. got, I mean, if you're in that front row, hooker or prop, and you've got, uh, what's it, five guys each weighing 100 plus behind you all pushing as hard as they can and you get caught in the middle of a human sandwich. And your neck's taking all of the... That's and you go down. You see now you and it's the direction of load and the collapse. So this is a this is a very so this was a very dangerous event. And so they 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 spent considerable time and resource figuring out what the better sequence would be. And so initially, crouch, touch, pause, engage was meant to sort of structure it a little bit better. Yeah, they discovered that that led to a degree of gaming of the system. They used to catapult the front row into the contact. 
and that was why the research was done to to establish a better sequence, which so is where we are now. there was initially just a massive impact as the scrum set, wasn't it? Yeah, at pause, they'd basically like load up and then on engage, they would just literally fly into each yeah. other, you know. The props were were flung into the, into the yeah. impact. And So for those of you not um, rugby fanatics and are still interested in listening to this podcast, I'm sure a lot of you are, um, now it's a case where the scrum actually binds up and then they only start pushing. So there's not that impact. It's a it's a strength game once the scrum has got together. Yeah, there's still a slight hit because yeah. on set, you know, two front rows do come together, but yeah. the space between them is much smaller than it ever was. So with less space, there's less time to build up that momentum and energy. So the the, the force on that impact is now lower. One interesting thing, and a month ago, World Rugby issued a clarification on this because it emerged that what teams were doing was preloading before the scrum. So the yeah. the opposing hookers especially were putting their foreheads or their top of their heads, the crown of their heads, on their opponent's shoulders. And then their teammates were pushing them into it. So effectively you can imagine you're in that bent over position and your head is now taking all that load from behind. <laughs> and that's that's very dangerous load. It's called axial loading because it's along the length of the spine from the top. And it's it's uh, what's called uncompensable. You can't get stronger and adapt to it. It only yeah. ever makes you worse. So it causes cervical or spine degeneration. And it was reported that there were a few chronic injuries arising as a result. So World Rugby had to modify that because teams constantly look for small ways to to gain an advantage within. How the, did they, how did they modify that? They, the, so they've asked the referees to ensure that there's a space between opponents so that okay. opposing players now line up um, with their heads alongside one another with a space prior to the hit. Okay. So, of course, a lot of pundits and coaches say, well, now you're going to get more collapsed scrums and there might be a small increase, but the risk from axial loading is so high that you had to, had to be changed. Yeah. And collapsed scrums, I mean, that's obviously a contentious point because if you watch rugby, you know, the 80s, 90s, and even in the 2000s, watching the way that tight head prop gets kind of pushed into the ground. And we've heard, I mean, there's horrific stories about people kind of coming out from the scrum at schoolboy rugby level and the guy's lying on the ground because his neck's been broken in that position. Yeah. Has, has, this, has this change in the rule been a success? Enormously. Really? It's, it's, it's probably the best uh, illustration of law change for safety that exists in, well, let me not make a bold statement because I don't know what other sports have f- been faced with and done, but it, it made a huge difference. I know that in France, since Crouchbind set, they haven't had a single scrum-related catastrophic. Wow. In South Africa, since the introduction, I think there was one, where before that, we are looking at records before, there were between three and five a year. Yeah. So th- this has been a very effective change. Um, and I imagine at the lower levels of the game, at schoolboy rugby and sort of college varsity rugby, that might even be better because there's, there's more control. Yeah, but the, the danger is that um, at those low levels, you get players who are not conditioned. Yeah. Their necks aren't up to the challenge. They don't have the technical expertise or ability in that front row. And there have been a couple of – there are a couple of legal cases actually around the world of – of spinal injuries happening at scrums because players weren't qualified to play there. So you actually need to be qualified now to play as a as an elite prop in, in rugby and, yeah. and and in fact in the community game. So I know there's one case. When you say I, qualified, what do you mean by qualified? They have to go undergo certain tests to see whether they're yeah, strong you, enough? Yeah, you pretty much have to be certified. It's okay. not like they test you to see your strength, but you have to be certified and, and signed off by your team as being capable of playing in that position. Okay. And there's a case where a team lost its player and they put a substitute in there 
who clearly wasn't, and the referee should have at that point said, no, this is not allowed. You have to have uncontested scrums now. And they didn't. That player was, as a result, injured. And the referee and the sport are then liable for that because they haven't a, a okay. complied with their own policy. So there's a lot of controls um, in, in rugby now. And as we've discussed, you know, those controls are being very positive not only for the safety of the game, but also the fact that the game has, you know, potentially not lost any of its entertainment value. Yeah, and those controls extend. So South Africa's got a program called Box Smart. In yeah. New Zealand, I think it's Rugby Smart. England's got one. Ireland's got one. So around the world now, Australia will, there are these injury prevention systems. And their objective is to upskill referees, coaches, even parents and players, so that they are aware of all these technical and safety issues around uh, injury. So th those those initiatives help a lot. Um, you know, catastrophic injuries and deaths in rugby have dropped enormously in places where these things exist. So there is a risk. Again, it comes back to that initial question you asked. There is a risk. But is if I'm a parent and I'm confident that my son or daughter is being taught technically the correct way to play, how to tackle, how to be safe – then that risk is being reduced as much as it possibly can, and then everyone can make that call. But I, I sincerely believe that the sport is trying what it can. It's not perfect by any means, but it is trying to do what it can to reduce the risk of very severe and mild injuries. And it's safer than it's ever been now? I think it's safer given the intensity of the game. Um, I don't know that it's safer than it's ever been because you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. I mean, in the 1980s, at club level rugby, were there more severe injuries than there are now? No one knows because they weren't tracked. Yeah. Whereas now they're being tracked. And so we get this bias of awareness. Yeah. Um, in many what, do you, what do you call it? Always the false positive. Yeah. Is it the case of that? Because you only know what you know once you start doing the research. Yeah, except they're not false positives. They're, yeah. they're true positives, yeah. but they, they've always been there. Yeah. But now you're looking for them. It's called the Bader-Meinhof effect. Have you ever... Have you ever not heard a word in English or seen a certain type of car and then someone points it out to you and the next week you see it eight times? <laughs> Have you had that before? Yes, so absolutely. This is the phenomenon. When you buy a new car and you see your car lots of times on the road ex after that. Exactly that. <laughs> this is the phenomenon rugby is dealing with. So when people became more aware of concussions, suddenly people saw more concussions. Yeah. And I remember even two years ago, I think it was, maybe one, I was watching a Six Nations match and an Irish prop took a hit and it looked like it could have been a head injury. He looked like he'd been injured. And we'll talk in a future podcast about what that looks like. And Twitter exploded because he didn't come off. And all of a sudden people on Twitter were saying he should have come off. And so two years before, nobody would have batted an eyelid. Yeah. But now we've created such awareness that when there's an omission or a potential omission, everyone points it out. It's the same with the high tackles now is Scott Barrett gets a red card. People are pointing out three others that could have, should have been red yeah. cards. One year ago, nobody would have even looked at them. So as we've, as rugby has created more awareness about high tackles and concussions, they are creating more problems of accusation of inconsistency and so forth. So anyway, it's, it's just a funny dilemma we, we exist yeah. with. Is you're, almost, you're almost a victim of your own positive intent, you know? Professor Rostaker, thank you very much. Follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.